Well, amen. Oh, glorious day. That's why we gather, right? Um, for those of you that do not know me, my name is Michael Bean, and I am one of the associate pastors here at uh, Riverview Baptist Church, and I uh, have the privilege of standing in for Pastor Spencer today. As Pastor Ron shared, he is in Israel, and so I would just echo what Pastor Ron said, that um, ask you to please pray for your pastor as he is in Israel. Pray that the Lord would give him a time of rest and refreshment, that the Lord would use that time in the Holy Land to just be uh, encouraging to him. And so uh, it's a great privilege, and I'm really thankful that he's able to go and do that. And so we'll just covet your prayers for him while he's away. Um, Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians. We'll be in chapter 1, verses 27 through 30 this morning. Verses 27 through 30. And today we will be talking about living worthy of the gospel. Living worthy of the gospel. And uh, this is something that if you are a believer, if you know Jesus Christ, this is a command that you're given. And today we'll unpack what does that look like? How can we be encouraged to live lives that are worthy of the gospel together? And I'm going to go ahead and kind of give something away here today uh, at the very beginning. You see the Lord's Supper here before us. We'll be taking the Lord's Supper. And my hope is that as we ask ourselves, am I living worthy of the gospel, that we would be still and we would take a moment and we would really think about this personally. Am I doing the things that the Bible lays out for us? Am I living a life worthy of the gospel? And so this would be a time of reflection as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper together this morning. So go ahead and please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. I'll be reading from Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30 this morning. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that it is true and good and right. Lord, we thank you that it shows us how to live, that it is sharper than any two-edged sword. And so, God, we pray now in these moments that you would help us to hear your word clearly. God, that you would help us to know how to apply it to our lives and to obey you. We thank you that you love us, and we ask that you would bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So one of my all-time favorite movies is a movie entitled Saving Private Ryan. Uh, If you've seen Saving Private Ryan, would you just participate with me? Raise your hand real quick. All right, good. I figured most of you probably had. But for those of you that haven't, I'm going to go ahead and give you a spoiler warning. All right, uh, I'm going to ruin the movie for you, okay? I'm going to tell you what happens. Um, but in the movie Saving Private Ryan, it depicts an event in World War II where Captain John Miller and his uh, platoon of Army Rangers are tasked to go and to find one man, uh, First Class Private Ryan. He's not anyone special. He's just a guy. And the reason that they are to go and find him is because his brothers have been killed in combat. And so he's had three brothers that have been killed, and it kind of, this word made its way up the ranks and got to the generals, and the generals decided no mother should have to bear that grief of losing four sons. So we're going to go and we're going to save this one. And so these men go uh, to the front lines of battle to look for Private Ryan. They don't know where he is. They just got to find him. And as they go, slowly, they're killed, one by one, as they go, until the end of the movie where they have a great battle, 
to defeat the Germans. And as they stay back and they choose to fight with Private Ryan, he says, I'm not leaving until I finish. As they choose to stay back, the remaining men that were left in the platoon die, helping Ryan complete his mission. And as uh, Captain Miller lays dying at the end of the movie, Private Ryan is by his side, and he leaves him with two kind of haunting words. He says, earn this. He says it again, earn this. And he passes away. And so the question is raised, how can one man live a life that is worthy of nine others dying for him? How is that possible? How can one person live a life that is deserving of the lives that these men could have lived? And in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, Paul does something really similar for his Christian Philippian readers. He tells us to live our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel. And this is actually a theme we're going to see in Paul's writings that comes up three other times. But the question is raised, how can our lives be deserving, ever be deserving of Jesus' death? How is that possible? What is Paul calling us to? Because I don't believe that Paul is just writing something that is a nice little saying, and he's saying, just try hard. I don't think that's it. He's telling us, no, you're called to live worthy. And he repeats this idea. If you're taking notes, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 12, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 12, you don't have to turn there, but it just says this, walk in a manner worthy of of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. In the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verse 10, he says, Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. And then finally, in Ephesians 4, verse 1, he says, Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. The reality still remains, we can never be worthy of God's Son dying for us. So what does he mean? And I would submit to you that that through the Apostle Paul, God isn't challenging us to try to reach a place where we somehow can deserve God's grace. Instead, Paul is calling us to do this. He's calling us to remember what Christ deserves from you and from me every single day. And the reality is what he deserves from us every moment that we take a breath, is all that we are. If the creator of the universe died in my place, what do I owe him? I owe him everything. And that's exactly what Captain Miller really challenged Private Ryan to do in the movie, to live the rest of his life in light of the reality that these other nine men died to save him. So to be a man of integrity, to be a man of honor, to live in light of what happened for him in that battle. And in the same way, we should live our lives in light of the reality that the king of the world died for us. That he took our place. The great irony is this, and I want to go ahead and confront this temptation or this misunderstanding head on here early on. Because it's something that can be so defeating. Um, Trying to earn God's favor through obedience is exhausting. Trying to please God with our good efforts, trying to somehow, I think, and and many times as Christians, we can fall into this trap very easily, to somehow live up to God's high calling for our lives is difficult. And in fact, we would say impossible. You can't do it. I can't do it. The scripture tells us to be holy for I am holy. The reality is holiness is perfection. That's how God is holy. He is perfectly holy. And the moment that you and I ever sin, we've lost that perfection. We can't get it back. And so there's no way that we can live up to this standard, this high calling that God has for us. Um, But that doesn't mean that we give up. I think the best way to try to understand what Paul is calling us to is simply this. That he's asking us to accept God's grace towards us 
in Christ Jesus and allow that to be the greatest motivator for us to obey. You see the difference? To accept what God has done freely, to, to say, I know I can't earn it, Lord. I know I can't be worthy of that. But because of what you have done, I want to give you all that I am. I want to give you everything that I have. And every day that I wake up, I want to remember what you did for me. I want to live in light of that reality. So today we'll ask three questions to kind of help us understand uh, how to live lives worthy of the gospel as we're called to. And as I've mentioned, uh, I want to mention again, as we close, we'll have a moment to take the Lord's Supper together. And as we prepare to take it, I would challenge you to ask yourself this repeatedly. Am I living a life worthy of the gospel? All right. So the first question, first question that we need to answer if we're going to live lives that are worthy of the gospel is what is the gospel? It's what is the gospel? I would submit to you uh, that we cannot live worthy of the gospel if we don't know what it is, if we're not clear about it. It's incredible. As I get to be a pastor, I have lots of conversations with believers, people that are Christians. And one of the, the things that we do in our membership interviews is, is we sit down and we ask people, what is the gospel? Can you tell me? And then tell me your testimony. How have you been saved? How has Jesus changed you? And one of the, the interesting things that happens is that very quickly it can become apparent there's a lot of fuzziness about what exactly is the gospel. Is it the ABCs of the Christian faith? Admit, believe, confess. Is it the cross? Is it the resurrection? What is the gospel? And so I just want to ask you, do you know? Because trying to live worthy of the gospel without clarity about what that is would be like hopping in your car right now and trying to get to Los Angeles without any directions, without any GPS, without any maps. You might get there, but the odds aren't very good, right? And so the same is true of us. If we're not clear about what the gospel is, if I don't take the time to try to sit down and figure this out, it's going to be hard for me to live worthy of that. So, so what is the gospel? Um, I want to give you a personal definition of the gospel this morning. I, I would submit it's not the best definition. It's not uh, anything like that, but it, but it helps me as I think about the gospel. And so what is the gospel? The gospel is the life-giving good news about God's grace and forgiveness towards sinful man through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, if we will repent and trust in him. And so I kind of want to break that down for you a little bit. Uh, Again, what is it? So I gave you that definition, but what is it? It's a life-giving message. That's the first thing that that I think we need to realize. It's a life-giving message. The gospel transforms us. Okay, the gospel literally changes us. We read 2 Corinthians 5.17. I didn't plan for us to, to read that this morning as we sang in worship. But it says, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. So there is a moment in time when we are saved by God's grace through faith and something happens in us where I am dead. I don't really care about following God. I care about pleasing me. I want to do what I think is right. I want to do what I think is best. I enjoy my sin. And then all of a sudden, I realize who he is. God helps me see him for who he is. He helps me see the seriousness of my sin. And boom, he does something in me. He changes me and he makes me alive, spiritually alive. And so it is a life-giving message. So I've emphasized kind of the life-giving part. The other thing that is important, and this is very freeing, for us, if we can remember this, it is a message. You may just say, well, Michael, you just said that. I got it. But the reality is, many times, if we're being very honest with ourselves, we get nervous when it comes time to share the gospel. We're really nervous about it. And I would submit to you that what happens many times when we are nervous, sometimes it may be spiritual warfare, sometimes it may be something of that nature, but many times when we get nervous... What's happening is we're forgetting that we, this is all we are. We're just message carriers. I just carry the message. I can't change anybody. I can't 
fix anybody. I can't save anybody. I just carry the message. So my responsibility is not to be a great theologian. My responsibility is not to be some incredibly impressive orator. My responsibility is simply to be faithful to deliver the message. There's freedom in that. All of a sudden, the pressure is off. I don't have to be so worried about exactly getting every little detail right. I just need to be faithful to deliver the message. So, uh, here's the other reality. If I acknowledge that it's a message, I then acknowledge that someone can hear it and choose not to receive the message. And that's between them and God. I don't have to get it exactly right. That's between them and God. And so, like I said, there's a lot of freedom in realizing uh, what it is. And now I want to take time to, to kind of break down four main components of the gospel. Four key components. If you're sharing the gospel, I would encourage you that you need to think through carefully. And I didn't come up with these myself. Uh, many of you have probably already heard these, in fact. There's a book in the back of our sanctuary there at the Faith at Home Center, a little black, small book, and it is entitled, What is the Gospel? And in it, the author provides these four components. Uh, the first one is God. We start with God. Always, when we're doing good theology, we start with God, not with anyone else or anything else. And so, what do we know to be true of God? Well, a lot of things, right? He's pretty complex. He's a little bit bigger than us. So there's a lot of things, right? Well, where do I start? I could start with the Trinity. I could start with uh, perfection. I could start with power. Where do we start? And like I said, there are many things that are necessary to cover but two things that I think are especially important as we're sharing the gospel are to communicate uh, these two things. Number one, that he is holy, that he is a holy God. And so when we say that God is holy, one of the things that we're saying is that he is not like us, that he is better than us, that he is perfect in every way, that he is perfectly righteous. Um, I already mentioned it. 1 Peter 1.16, be holy as I am holy. The, the scriptures are full of descriptions of God's holiness. And so we must remember that he is perfect in every way. The other thing that I would submit to you that's important to remember as we're sharing the gospel, again, there's more to the story than this, but this is two kind of key components, is number two, he's the creator. That he is the creator. So he is the holy creator God. He is the creator. Uh, you see that in Genesis 1 and 2 most clearly. And what happens is this. All of a sudden, if we get those two components in there, all of a sudden I have a God who is perfectly right and good and just and holy, and he's the creator. And guess what that means? He's created everything. Everything that you see, taste, touch, experience, know in this life, he owns it. So that kind of creates this reality. If he created everything, he created you and he created me. That he owns me, whether I like it or not. So God. Number two, man, us. So the next component is us, man. What do we know to be true of us? Like I said, there's lots of things that we could say that were made in God's image. We could talk about lots of different things about the capacity of uh, human wisdom. We could talk about a lot about um, the, the different faculties that God has blessed us with. But two things that, again, are really important as we think about what is the gospel is actually just the inverse of what's true about God if we wrote those things down. God is the holy creator. Guess what? We are sinful creatures. He's the holy creator, but we're sinful creatures. And so we see in Romans 3.23, verses like Romans 6.23, we've got a very serious problem here. There is a holy creator, God. He owns everything, and he owns me, and I am a sinful creature. He owns me, and I've messed up. So all of a sudden, we realize this. I need his forgiveness. Somehow I need to make this thing right. So what do we do? Try harder. Work better. 
Read your Bible more. Stop lying. Any of that going to work? No, the Bible says, right? Of course not. The wages of sin is death. You've already earned it. It's coming your way. And there's nothing you can do to stop it. So what's the answer? Well, again, Romans 3.19 helps us see our accountability before God. The answer, as you well know, and this is no surprise, and this is the third component, is Christ. Jesus Christ. If we're going to be forgiven, if I'm going to find redemption, if I'm going to set this thing right with this holy creator God, I've got to look somewhere else. I can't do it in and of myself. So, People talk about the person of Christ. Again, we could say a lot of things. We could say that he is God's sinless son, which would be true. That he came, that he's the second person of the Trinity. We could say that he's the Messiah. All of these things are true of Jesus. But again, some things that we might want to stress are the work of Christ. His life, death, and resurrection, specifically. Things that he has done to set us free from sin. The things that he has accomplished for you and for me, the very things that we could never do, even if we did die on a cross, that wouldn't do anything. That just means you get what you deserve. And so he did what we could not do. First Peter 2.24 describes very clearly what happened on the cross. And it's beautiful. What happens is this. There is a moment on the cross where Jesus takes our sin and sinfulness and he receives it gladly on himself And he exchanges those who will trust in him, those who will follow him and make him the Lord of their lives. We get his righteousness. We get his purity. We get his perfection. And that is good news, friends, because if you or I, if God ever looked at us through the lens of our own works, we're in trouble. We're in major trouble. But because of Jesus Christ and the covering of his blood placed on us through the cross, He sees us and he relates to us through the cleanness and the beauty of Jesus. And and so I'll I'll confess to you, when I was getting, uh, I guess, kind of acquainted with this idea about sharing the gospel, this is where I stopped. And I got really good at the message. And I got really focused on exactly, okay, what's the best way to do this? And how do I share this well? And, And I don't want to mess this up and I want to get this right. And I got really, really focused on the message. And so I would start telling people and I would start talking to people. And I would forget exactly what I just said to you. What was I doing? I'm talking to people. I forgot that there's a hearer. And it's not just enough to share a message and walk away. God calls us to allow and to call people to response. Again, we're not going to save anybody. We don't have the power to forgive anybody. But we're called to say, and now in light of this message, you have a choice. What do you want to do, friend? And so we give this last component response. Acts 2:21, I mean, excuse me, Acts 20:21 20, uh, provides for us clearly what is the response that is necessary? The response that is necessary, again, we can't control this, is repentance and faith. That there is a place in a person's heart that God awakens them to the reality of their sin, to the reality of who he is, and to the reality of what awaits them if something doesn't change. And they turn from their sin. I no longer want that. I want Jesus. I want to be forgiven. And so I'm going to leave that behind me. I repent of those things. I no longer want those things. I want Jesus. And then the only way to do that is by faith. I have to trust God. I have to trust that what he did on the cross for me was enough. I have to trust that he's good and that he does love me and that he does want to forgive me. I have to trust the promises of God's word. Hebrews eleven six says that without faith it is impossible to please God. That anyone who would come to him must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. That he's a good God. And so we have to believe those things and trust those things and turn to him. And as we do that, God is faithful. But this morning, I want us to do this as we're preparing to take the Lord's Supper. And as we are um, quickly, very quickly approaching Easter Sunday, I want us to just take just a moment and go back to Christ. 
and go back to the cross and to just kind of zero in there for just a minute. Because I think it, there's a great temptation for us. You, many of you may be sitting in your pews and you may think, well, Michael, I've heard that a thousand different times and I could probably say it better than you can. I don't need that. And when we have hearts like that, when we think things of that nature, it's very easy for us to miss the cross. And I want to just say this. In the cross, we see something really important. We see both the goodness and the severity of God. The goodness and the severity of God simultaneously come together in one place at the cross of Jesus Christ. Severity in that God is unwilling to allow sin to go unpunished. Severity in realizing that God hates sin with a burning passion that you and I cannot imagine. Severity in that he was willing to crush his own son because he hated sin so much. That's severe. But goodness in his willingness to send his only son to stand in our place, to take exactly what we deserve and to carry the burden for us, to carry the punishment for us. And interestingly, see, our society really has a, a big problem when we start talking about the severity of God, we talk about the wrath of God. People say, see, you, have, you serve an angry little God. If he was really good, he would just love people. If he was really good, he would just let people be forgiven. Why does he have to have some sort of sacrifice? Why does he have to do that? And what I would submit to you, friends, is actually God's severity and his anger towards sin and his wrath towards sin is tied directly to his goodness. Because here's the reality. Let's take a judge. Let's put him in the room with a convicted serial killer rapist. Destroyed many families, taken mothers away from sons and daughters. And because he's a loving judge, and because he's a good judge and he's a nice judge, he looks at this man and he says, I want you to know I'm a good and loving judge, so I'm going to pardon you. You're, you go free. Continue on. You're forgiven. Is that a good judge? No, that's a bad judge. We would get angry at that, right? There would be something in us that should well up and say, get that guy out of there. And in the same way, listen, friends, God's a good God. So he will punish sin. He will do what's right because of exactly the fact that he is good and he is loving and he does care and he will set the record straight. And so we see in the cross, these two things come together, this collision of love and grace and severity of God. And I want to just share with you quickly three ways that Christ suffered, and we must never forget this part, in my place and in your place. Three ways that Christ suffered. Number one, physical pain and death. That's perhaps the most obvious. We know the story. Jesus was taken and he was killed. He was nailed to a tree. But many times what we forget, you see, the devil is in the details. The ugliness is in the details. We know that truth. But the details of the cross are terrible. The Romans were excellent at torture. They would figured out some of the most excruciating ways to end someone's life. And so what happened to Jesus was essentially a slow suffocation where a person was hung on a tree by nails and forced to do some of the most painful maneuvers that he could to take his next breath over and over and over again. Because of the ways that his arms were pulled up and out, the chest cavity was pushed forward, and so he could inhale, but it was very difficult to exhale. In fact, hanging there with the weight of your body against your chest, impossible. And so... What Jesus had to do in order to take his next breath was to pull on the nails and push on the nails in his feet to take what's already in searing, blinding pain from hanging on those things and then to pull and to push on those things, the pain centers, to take his next breath and just to repeat it over and over again. And this after he's been beaten beyond recognition. This after he's been spit on. 
Friends, that is our punishment. That's my punishment. That should have been me. If we ever forget that, we're not seeing the gospel well. If we ever forget that truth, we're not seeing clearly. Secondly, Jesus suffered in the pain of bearing sin and separation. The pain of bearing sin and separation. Firstly, sin. It's not enough that the God of the universe, who had never experienced pain, sadness, or sorrow in any sense, left the splendor and glory of heaven to come and walk among sinful men. You see, that's a, that's a huge sacrifice in and of itself. But he does this, and the, the ones he came to save reject him. Peter, I'll never deny you, Lord. Three times. He comes, he's rejected, and then on the cross, never knowing the guilt of sin. Have you ever sinned and felt guilty about it? I hope you have, right? There's a, there's a crushing weight that, man, I messed up. I've done something incredibly wrong, and I need to somehow set it right. And it kind of churns inside of us. Jesus literally took the sins of the planet on himself, and bore that. That is not some story. That is not some fanciful thought. That is the reality of what happened. He took the sins of the planet upon himself and he bore that and he endured that on the cross. And in so doing, he experienced something that he never experienced before. And we don't understand the mystery of the Trinity. We cannot understand the mystery of the Trinity. But to some degree, he experienced a separation from God the Father that he had never experienced before. How do you know that, Michael? On the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cried. Complete and total isolation. You see, God promises once we're saved never to leave us, never to forsake us. But Jesus went through the unthinkable for you and for me. And then lastly... He suffered by bearing the wrath of God against sin. Jesus became the object of God's hatred and righteous anger towards sin for us. Kind of a, a $10 word in theological circles is the word propitiation. You've heard Pastor Spencer talk about it. But it has the idea, it has the, the weight of a sacrifice that is placed and killed so that, to a deity, so that the anger that has been stored up against the individual, could be forgiven. And so the anger that was stored up for us since the beginning of the world, God poured out on him. And Jesus bore that as well so that we could be forgiven. You see, in the moments that we pause to consider the weight of Jesus' suffering, we simultaneously see the goodness and severity of God. Everything that Jesus experienced is exactly what you and I deserve. It's not overstating the case. It's not God going too far. It's what sinful people deserve in the face of an infinitely good and righteous God because our sins are infinitely offensive to that infinitely good and righteous God. And so Jesus took that. He took the infinitely good one, died for the sake of, of the sinful many. And so our response to that should simply be this. Of course I want to live for you. If nine guys dying for, for Private Ryan is an emotional deal, how about the creator of the universe taking those things for you and for me? Of course I want to live for him. Of course I want to, to make my life be honoring to him. He's worthy. He's worth it. And so when we see the gospel clearly... It motivates us to live worthy of the gospel. So that's the answer to question one. What is the gospel? Number two. Next question. Number two. The next question is, what does it mean to say to live as Christ and to die as gain? You may say, well, Michael, that's not in the, the passage we read. No, it's not. But it is just a couple of verses up, and I think it's closely tied to this idea of living life in a manner worthy of the gospel. If you look at Philippians 1.21, if you've still got your Bibles open, Paul makes his, his famous proclamation. He makes his famous statement. 
He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And I would submit to you, we need to understand well what that means if we're going to live lives worthy of the gospel. We need to understand what he's talking about. So, what does it mean to say to live as Christ and to die as gain? Uh, that's a significant clue to living worthy of the gospel. Um, the first, let's start with the end, because I think it's a little easier to start with the end on this one. To die as gain. Let's break it down. That one, I think if we're believers and we've experienced this earth for very long, that one makes sense. Okay? Um, man, this place is messed up, Right? You look all over the planet, you look at people that are starving, you look at the wars, you look at the things that are happening. This is certainly not a perfect place. And so if I die and I go to be with God, guess what? I get to be in a perfect place. There's no more pain, there's no more sickness, there's no more sorrow, there's no more suffering. All of those things are vaporized. They're done. That's a game. But how about this? I'm going to be in perfect relationship with God for eternity, forever and always. I will be exactly what he has called me to be, and I'll be able to glorify him and know him in ways that are unimaginable for the rest of my days. That's good. That's a gain. So I think when we start thinking about to die is gain, we can see, sure, death may hurt, but man, what awaits us is so good. But how about the first part? To live is Christ. I think this one is a little bit tougher. To live is Christ. Grammatically even, this is a hard phrase. To do a verb is a noun. To live is a person. What in the world does that mean? Again, I don't think Paul is giving us some kind of platitude or some sort of religious statement believe that he really means something here. So what does he mean? One of the things that I would submit to you is that he is saying this. In Jesus, true, meaningful, purposeful, abundant, rich life, real life is found in Jesus. It's not in success. It's not in money. It's not in even family. Even the good things that God gives us. That is not where life is found. Life is found in one man, Jesus Christ. And so the way that I would help us understand this is to think about nature. We look outside, we see the the rocks, the water, beautiful place, the trees. We know rocks and water don't live. They're not alive. They're there. They exist. But they're not alive. You say, well, Michael, trees are alive if you're a biologist. Yes, okay, biologically, trees are alive. But I think all of us would agree they don't live in the same sense that you and I live. They don't know love. They can't enjoy beauty. They don't experience pain. They don't live the way that you and I live. And friends, listen to me. If you don't know Jesus, you're not living. You're just existing. You see, something is very different. Something different happens. As I mentioned, we become spiritually alive. And when we see Jesus for who he is and we know him for who he is, we no longer just chase one thing after the other, trying to fill some void, trying to fill some some sense of worth or happiness. We no longer need that because we see the creator of the universe loves me and died for me. And now I know who I am. I'm his. And he's mine. And nothing can ever take that away from me. And so there is life in Jesus Christ. To live is Christ. And to die is gain. You see, we got to get this. We have to understand this. And we have to really get to where... We can say that. Ask yourself, do I believe that? In my heart of hearts, do I believe that? Do I believe really to live as Christ? Is that something I can honestly say? If I can't say that Jesus plus nothing, see, what happens is I think we write these equations in our minds and we say Jesus plus comfort equals everything. Or Jesus plus my spouse equals everything. Jesus plus better marriage equals everything. Jesus plus a better job. Then, I'll, then it'll all be good. 
then it'll equal everything. No. You see, if we think that way, if we live that way, we'll miss what God has for us. God does not desire that we would be dispassionate, dry, duty-bound, religious people. That's not what he calls us to, to just going through the motions, to just doing the stuff that he asks. No, he calls us to joy. What's one of the fruits of the Spirit? Joy. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. And if we know God, what, what happens is this, is all of a sudden we're able to transfer our happiness in other things and other people. You see, joy is just really happiness in God. That's all it is. So that I see God for what he's worth, and he makes me happy. And so what comes in my, into my life or out of my life, that's okay, because he makes me happy. doesn't mean that it's always perfect, but it does mean that it doesn't change. So, um, very simply this. We cannot live lives worthy of the gospel without seeing God as the greatest good in life. It's just that simple. We cannot live lives worthy of the gospel unless we see him as the greatest good we're ever going to get. I don't see, if I don't see God as the unquestioned ultimate good in life, then I need to change. And the best way that I can try to relate to you uh, this idea is, is this. And I say what I'm about to say carefully because I'm the life group pastor here at Riverview Baptist Church and I'm also the next generation pastor. So give me a little grace with what I'm about to say. I admit to you, there are times, even though I'm the next generation pastor, I don't always love being around little children, okay? If I'm being totally transparent and honest, after about the 18,000th time of peekaboo, I'm ready for something else, all right? I'm kind of done here. And there's a difference in being around a child when there's a screaming baby and, and, or there's, there's, there's disobedience and those sorts of things. And then when a child is just being a child, they're just being innocent. And then I still want to do something else. You see, I have to acknowledge in that moment, friends, when I look at that situation, it's not that there's something wrong with the child. It's me. I need to change. There's something wrong with me. There's a character flaw in me. The child is, is being exactly who, this is a precious Creation of God made in his image. Why can't I enjoy that? What's wrong with me? I'm sinful. That's what's wrong with me. And so the same is true of us. Listen to me. If you don't hear anything else, the same is true of us. If we look at God and we don't enjoy him, we need to hit our knees and ask God, change my heart. Something is wrong with me. I don't see you the way that I should. I'm I'm, I'm too busy. Something is messed up. Help me, Lord, to see you for who you are. Because when we see him for who he is, our automatic response is to be filled with joy. Our automatic response is to enjoy God. That's why heaven is going to be so great. We'll get to enjoy him forever. So, ask yourself, when I think of the Lord, does it fill me with joy? If it doesn't, Lord, change me. Help me to see you for who you are. Lastly, last question. This is the practical part. So we see kind of things that can help motivate us and change our hearts towards God to want to live lives that are worthy of Him. Those are the motivators, the first two questions. The last and final question, question number three. All right, so I see perhaps how the Lord can can help change my heart. Question number three. What am I called to do in light of that? What am I called to do? Paul outlines it in the following verses, really the, the last half of 27 all the way through the end of the chapter. What am I called to do? He gives kind of four very practical things. Number one, he says, stand firm. Stand firm. You and I, if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you are called to stand firm. You are called to stand firm, number one, against temptation and sin. Listen, friends, if sin is what you're saved from, you're crazy to go back to it. If that's the reason we die, there is no scenario that sin is going to work out in my best interest. And so, 
I need to reject that. I need to fight that. I need to kill that desire for sin in my life. We all have those. We need to acknowledge that and not pretend like we're perfect. We're not. And I need to fight that and ask God to help me kill sin in my life. So stand firm against sin. Number two, stand firm against discouragement in the world. Again, you look around. Guys, if life hasn't gotten hard for you yet, just give it a minute, right? Life is hard. It's going to knock you down. It's full of situations that can disappoint you, discourage you, defeat you, overwhelm you, fill in the blank. And what I would, the image I would give you is just this. When I was a little boy, I would go to the beach with my parents. We lived in South Mississippi growing up, and the beach was not very far away. And so we got to go to Florida, see some really beautiful places. And I had this game that I liked to play when I would go to the beach. I would run out past kind of the initial first deep part in the ocean, and I would find the sandbar. There's a sandbar, and what's coming at the sandbars? The waves, right? The waves are coming. So you try to do some fun stuff with the waves. And I invented a game. And what I would do is I would stand in the sand, and I would squirm my feet down into the sand to try to make them stand firm, to try to make them immovable. And I would let the waves come. And I would fight them, or I would kind of give with the waves and try to make sure my feet didn't move. I would do whatever it took just for my feet to not move. And guess what? I could make it past the first wave most times. And the big one would come and it'd start sucking me forward. And then boom, crash over me and I'm gone, right? Boom. Guys, listen to me. As powerless as I was as a seven-year-old boy to stand against the waves, you and I are powerless to stand against the waves of life, to stand against the waves of sin, to stand against the waves of discouragement that await us. And so we need Jesus. That's why you need to spend time with him. That's why you spend time in his word, not to be some sort of better version of yourself, but because he's our sustainer. He's what's good. And so, of course, I want to know him. Of course, I want to spend time with him. Stand firm. Number two, live in unity. Live in unity. We're called to live in unity with other believers. That's a hard one for us as Americans. We live in a very individualistic society, so much so that we stand in rooms with people nowadays, and we have these, and what do we do? Do we talk to the people? No. Right? We're not even talking to the people around us. That's how individualistic we often are. And God tells you, tells you and me that we are His children, and that He has given us His church, and that you and I are a part of a spiritual family. And so... When it comes to the Christian walk, there are no spiritual lone rangers. We are not called to do this on our own. God calls us to community. God calls us to live in unity with our fellow brothers and sisters. And that can be a difficult thing. Because guess what? The church is made up of fallen people, right? And so it's not always easy to get along. But it doesn't matter because we're called to unity by our Creator. We must remember that our churches are not about us. They're about Jesus. So if I don't like the music, or I don't like the color of the carpet, or I don't like some other blessed thing, I need to get over it. Because it's not about me. It's about Jesus. Yes, I need to be fed. Yes, I need to be in a faithful church. But I also need to be thinking about God has not called me to come to church and just sit in a pew and go home. That's not what he's called me to. He's called me to Christian community and to live in unity with the body of Jesus that he's given us here. And so are you doing that? Do you know people? Are you part of a life group? Are you living in unity? Perhaps even more pointedly, is there a relationship in your life that you need to make right, that you need to reconcile? Is God calling you to reconcile a relationship with a family member, with a co-worker, someone in this room. We are called to live in unity. It's not an optional thing. The other thing we see in the text, he says, Stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So the, the unity is in the one spirit and the one mind. And then he says this, Strive side by side for what? The faith of the gospel. 
We are called to live by faith. We're called to live by faith. That's an incredibly easy thing to understand. It's an incredibly hard thing to do. It's an incredibly easy concept to get and say, okay, check, got it. It's an incredibly hard thing to do that, to live by faith. I wake up every morning and my mission is not my comfort. My mission is not my priority list. My mission is to walk with God. And if he calls me into something uncomfortable, if he calls me into something different or not easy or not my preference, guess what? I'm going to do it because I live by faith and not by sight. I'm going to follow him. I'm going to do the unthinkable. Why? Not because I'm good, not because I've got some extra power, but because God has called me to it. And so are you living by faith? Do you ever ask yourself, what's the next step? What is it that God's calling me to? Or do we allow ourselves to be satisfied with our daily to-do lists and to chase our own little dreams? Friends, God has for us things beyond, much beyond our wildest dreams. Much more exciting than career success. Much more exciting than the little things that we build. Do I have the faith to follow him to it? We're called to live by faith. And last but not least, he says, towards the end of the, the sentences there, verse 29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer. That you and I should be willing to suffer for him. It's a hard thing. Anybody want to sign up for suffering? Not me. Guess what? If you're a believer, you've signed up for it. What in our right minds would ever make us think that if the sinless Son of God suffered on this planet, that we should somehow get to be exempt? How does that ever make sense under any circumstance? It doesn't. If he suffered, and he's the master, and he's the sinless one, we're going to suffer. And so we shouldn't be surprised. It doesn't mean we have to just love it doesn't mean we have to be excited about it, but we shouldn't be surprised. It shouldn't shake us to our core the way that it often does. Imagine with me a young man who goes to receive his father's estate, his estranged father. Doesn't know the man very well. And he goes and he finds out that he's not just going to receive some guy's estate. What he's actually going to receive is Bill Gates' estate. He's going to receive... Not millions with an M, billions with a B. And so all he has to do is go to the lawyer's office and start signing some papers. And on his way to the lawyer's office to sign the papers that would grant him this inheritance, something horrible happens. He gets a flat tire. And he says, oh, man. So he has to pull over and he starts looking through the car Starts trying to find the tire iron. It's gone. Not there. And so this is what he does. He walks to the front of the car, and he sits on the front of the car, and he just throws his hands up in the air, and he says, That's it. I tried. I give up. This is absolutely not worth it. This is just too much. What would you say to that guy? Yeah, get up. What are you doing? There are billions of dollars awaiting you over here. Just get yourself up and walk if you have to. Do whatever it takes. Just go. Right? Listen to me, friends. You are a co-heir with Christ. The king of the universe calls you his child. We're not talking about billions. We're talking about goodness unimaginable. Get up. Walk. Go. Endure. Suffer. Do whatever it takes to gain your inheritance to live a life worthy of this gospel. Honor Jesus. Do whatever it takes. There is no sadness, no difficulty, no hardship that is not going to be worth enduring. The goodness of God will be enough. It's guaranteed. So now, I just want to ask you to examine yourself. You see what to do? Stand firm. Don't give in to sin. Don't give in to discouragement. 
Live in unity. Be a person that truly loves the people God's placed in your life. Live by faith. Don't just do what's rational. Don't just do what's easy. Don't just play it safe. Live by faith. And lastly, be willing to suffer. Are those things true of you? Are you living in light of the goodness of the gospel that's been given to us? That's our challenge. That's our reflection this morning as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper. As we do that, I just want to remind you of a few quick thoughts. I want to remind you of a few quick thoughts that we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Why do we do this? Well, as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, we remember what it is. The Lord's Supper is a picture of Christ's death. That his body was bruised and crushed and broken for you and for me. And we've already talked about the gruesomeness of that, the pain that he endured. Not only is it a picture of Christ's death, Paul says in verse 26 towards the end, he says that as often as we take it, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What does that mean? It means this. You can't proclaim it if you don't believe it. You can't proclaim it if you don't believe it. And so, very simply, if you are not a believer today, if you don't know this Jesus that I'm talking about, I would encourage you to just don't worry about taking these elements. Sit and be still and consider this gospel that you've heard today. You don't have to come down front. You don't have to do anything special. You can pray with the Lord right where you are. You can trust Him and repent of your sins right where you are. And that is my encouragement to you this morning. And if you are a believer, Paul also says a little bit later in the chapter, he says that a man should examine himself before taking the supper. And so to ask ourselves this morning some really hard questions. Is there unrepented sin in my life? Is there a person that I'm not living in unity with? Is there a place in my life where I'm not walking by faith? And if so, to give those things to God, to turn to the cross and allow him to be enough. And so those are the things that I would encourage you uh, to consider this morning. I'm going to pray for us, and then we will take this Lord's Supper together. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you, and, and Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word. God, we thank you for the good gospel that you have given us, that you have redeemed us and saved us if we know you and we have trusted in you. Lord, I pray now that as we take this Lord's Supper, that you would give us discernment. Your word says that our hearts can be deceitful above all else. God, help us to see truly what's in our hearts. Help us to know where to, to examine ourselves and to repent and trust in you. God, we thank you that you love us, and we thank you for what this supper pictures. We ask these things in your name. Amen.